and we need to raise those guilds like they are going to be replacement females. You know, we, we don't need to raise them off in the side of the barn uh, as grow finished pigs. We need to raise them like they're going to be the engine for your profitability. And to me, those are the places uh, where I think it, it starts. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Adiseo, a worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions, such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health by nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host for today's Swine It podcast. I'm Laura Greiner, and with me today, I have Dr. Benny Mote, who is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska. How are you today, Benny? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, we're glad to have you on today. Benny, before we get started with our conversation, maybe it would be a good idea for you just to give our audience a little bit of background about who you are and what your experiences have been in the swine industry. So I'm, I'm one of the people that I can say I, I definitely grew up in the swine industry as I was born into it. Uh, my, my father has been in the swine industry his entire life as well. Uh, so I was born and I, I, even before school, I, I would go with him to his job as a manager. I'm not sure you can necessarily do that today. You have a little four or five year old kid running around, but I, I would go uh, with him uh, when he was working. Some of my early memories were helping move uh, little wean pigs from, you know, farrowing over to nurseries. And, you know, then it was put them in the back of the pickup and, and move them across the way. So to say that pigs is ingrained in me is, is definitely there. Um, you know, from from there, I guess most of my younger life, I grew up in, in Happy, Texas. I tell everybody it's a great place to be from. It's a good talking point. Everybody will, will recognize that. Um, did 4-H and FFA, uh, showing pigs from county up to the state level. Uh, then after high school, I actually spent three years in the Army, uh, bounced around a little bit, was only stationed in the U.S. Uh, following that, I went to University of Nebraska here, I actually did my undergrad. I was on both the, the livestock and meats judging team when I was here. I was actually active in a lot of internships between uh, the U.S. Mark out at Clay Center 
And then even with Monsanto. So I was, I was very active in internships and then went and did my PhD under uh, Dr. Mac Trotschild there at Iowa State, uh, working on cell longevity, uh, trying to find candidate genes for that. And then in 2008, I, I took my first job, I guess, adult job, if you will, with uh, Fast Genetics. Uh, the first two years I worked uh, out of Canada in, in Saskatoon. And then after that, the next five years, I worked out of a home office uh, just outside of uh, Ames, uh, where my wife was living at the time. We were separated for the first couple of years. And then in 2015, I uh, had the opportunity to come to UNL as the um, assistant or the assistant professor and, and swine extension specialist uh, for the state uh, with a, you know, a 60% extension appointment and 40% research and have been active and, and busy here at UNL ever since. Wonderful. You certainly had quite a few life experiences along the way. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but pigs have always seemed to be a part of that. And so I think that's a wonderful story to tell. From the time I was about in fifth grade to leaving for the Army, uh, I did all the processing in the Farron house. And so when I came back home that first uh, break when I was in the Army, my dad told me, you got a lot of pigs you missed. And I said, I was in the army. How was I supposed to process them? So, <laughs> so I've definitely got my hands dirty and my boots dirty along the way. Wonderful. Well, one of the things, Benny, that you and I have visited a bit about is, is really with your experiences in the University of Nebraska, one of the things that you're passionate about is talking about sows and sow longevity, uh, which is very much a key issue that we talk about in the swine industry. Um, certainly with survivability and performance and, and the economics of replacing a sow, um, sow longevity should be on the top of our list. So let's just start with some generalities. What have you seen over the last five to 10 years in terms of sow longevity? Anything that's significantly changing or stands out to you that, that we need to address right away? Uh, you know, I think one of the, the bigger take-homes is that we've we've been talking about sow longevity for decade two decades now and the needle hasn't gotten any better as a matter of fact it's probably actually gone worse and so you know we we need to step back as an industry and go what has changed or, or what are we not doing that that we should be doing um i don't think it's necessarily the size of the farms i think we get big farms that are good we get little farms that are good and we get the opposite of that as well. So it, to me, it's going to come back to, I think, having people in the barn that understand the animal and can manage the animal they have in their barn. Yeah, I think that's what surprised me. Not that long ago, I was reviewing some data. And if you look from even five or 10 years ago, reasons for sow removal are still pretty much the same. And the percent associated with lameness hasn't changed. And we've talked lameness and foot quality for years. And so, you know, where do we go, right? I think that's kind of where we sit here and scratch our heads and say, we've talked about it. We've identified the issues. We go into barns, we tell people, if they get the sows up, watch for weight bearing on legs, you know, treat, so forth. How do, how do we change this needle? Do you have any thoughts immediately? Yeah, I think it's going to come back to uh, what animals get loaded onto the truck. And maybe, and it'll probably start well before that, but definitely which animals get selected. 
to go to the south arms at, at whatever size. Um, I know I've been in situations where I've seen um, guilt selected on farms where you wonder if they went past that second pin to go down and find the gilts to ship. You find the ones closest to the loadout chute and okay, it kind of walks, it gets loaded. So we need to, to get beyond that mentality, get a little extra incentive um, back to the selectors and make sure they have the time to actually go down through those guilds and select them, you know, not just give them an order last minute, say they got to go tomorrow and, you know, they go through that's, that's when they do just go to the first couple pins and pull guilds and, and ship them. So, and, and we need to raise those guilds like they are going to be replacement females. You know, we, we don't need to raise them off in the side of the barn uh, as grow finished pigs. We need to raise them like they're going to be the engine for your profitability. And to me, those are the places uh, where I think it, it starts. A couple of things that stood out when you were talking there. One thing I can always remember is we have our guilt development unit. Our replacement females are there. We go in for selection and we give the farm staff a, a rule of 85% you need to select. Is that a fair number? to say, let's just set and say this percent of the, the population would be acceptable? Ooh, I, hate, I hate using a, a, a set number. And depending on what those pigs have already gone through, I, I don't think I go to 85. In my mind, I guess I was always looking at about a, a 70%. Um, so, you know, kind of where that's at. But you give people a number and they're always able to try to hit that number. Um, one of my uh, earliest memories with, with FAST is when we were still fairly new shipping into the, the U.S. and we had a customer that, that wasn't pleased with uh, some of the guilts, particularly on feet and legs. So I was in and another person was in specifically selecting the loaded guilts to go to that customer. With the CEO of the company standing in the alley right behind us as we were going through and marking keep guilts and coal guilds. And with the CEO going, I can't coal that many, I won't stay in business. And with my friend and I going, but if you sell these guilts, you won't be in business. And so, you know, to tell somebody you have to have that, that, that percentage, they can always hit the percentage to go on the truck. It's, you know, having the people to know or giving your selectors a leeway to say, I can't get that with this set, but if you let me go one age group older or one age group lower, I can get you those guilds. And I think that would that would help a lot. Um, obviously, you need you need the throughput, but if if you just have that target, they'll always hit it. They'll always be able to sh ship eighty five percent, seventy percent out the door. Yeah, and that's something that I I actually think is is an interesting statement in itself because you often wonder. For all of the guilts that we raise as guilt replacements in the United States, what percent of them should we truly define as being acceptable into the population? And, and I'm not saying, okay, let's give the farm staff a number, but really how many animals should we think about as far as the whole pool in the United States are really set up to be replacement females? Yeah. And, and the point on that, you know, and there's ebbs and flows in, um, the guilt flow oddly as to what is acceptable, even though 
you know, it's roughly the same genetics all the time. You wonder kind of what those little intricacies are that, that get you to that point. But being able to, uh, you know, have that number and, and get them out the door is always kind of interesting. The other thing you you said in that first statement really went around uh, raising them as if they are going to be our engines for the next pop, next generation. What does that mean to you? Right. So is it space? Is it feed? Is it vaccine strategies? What what in your mind are some things that we should be thinking about that hold that animal different? So I think uh, feed and space are the ones that most people gravitate to. And I think those are the your starting points, um, you know, making sure uh, and I'd even probably even throw in flooring on that as well. You know, there's several people out in the industry will talk about if you do this certain thing on flooring, you know, the, the two thirds solid, one third slats or different type of slats, how they can get a different selection rate on their gilts. And so I think we need to come back and, and take a look at that on the, even on the slat side as, as what we're doing. And also, you know, having, um, you know, instead of just checking on them once a day, you know, they're, they're, they're your future. Have people check on them a couple of times a day. If you catch some of those things early, you can um, turn more things around. You can catch things from going uh, off the rails, if you will. Um, just so, you know, do it early. As if you ever get to that point where you're having to dig deeper in your gilts, the next time those females cycle through, you're just going to be in that death spiral where you keep having to dig deeper uh, into that set of replacement gilts because the set you had before, uh, you know, they weren't set up for the future. So we, we want to stay away from that death spiral when it comes to replacement females. What are you seeing in terms of technology that can help us predict cell longevity or uh, just even that process of identifying animals that are appropriate for the herd? So this is uh, one of the, the fun topics that uh, research topics I get to work on. And so here at UNL, we have a, a, a system, uh, we call it NewTrack, uh, where we use uh, kind of off the shelf uh, can, uh, security cameras, uh, just 2D security cameras. We place it above some gilt pins uh, that were specific for uh, replacement females out at US Mark. And we follow those gilts for a week, is one week prior to selection. And we actually, we went back and looked at some of the metrics that that system can track and compared it against how their trained selector, what they did to keep females back. And of the traits that, that system tracks we found some things such as the time those gilts been standing like the distance they walk you know kind of how fast they walk those were correlated with being retained as replacement females and so you know a lot several of those things make sense you know the, the gilts that are more comfortable on their feet and legs they can be up more they can move more they aren't really inhibited by anything so just you know that makes sense you know we, we aren't trying to ever take away a job but if we could come back and, and augment that and say, here's this, here's what that guilt did the last week. Uh, you know, with that, that project, we picked up when guilts were going lame before the farm staff could identify them because, you know, those systems are in the barn 24 seven, they're watching them all the time. And so we could, it, it was really neat going back and say, yep, we could see the guilt, you know, her, her trajectory was going down. She wasn't walking as much and yep, that's then two days later, that's when they pulled her. So it's really neat to get to, to that level of detail 
to pick that out. And, you know, for that one on lameness, the velocity, so how fast those gilts are walking and the distance were two very telltale signs of those animals are not as comfortable uh, as the other, especially when you get into those changes. Um, so that, that's been a, a really a neat project. It's, we've, we've started the new track on some other things. We've kind of ventured off into several different aspects of it. Um, we've identified that most of those traits, so the time they spend standing or lying or at the feeder, at water um, and time sitting, those are, they're heritable. It's actually a little bit scary how high those were. Most of them were in the heritability range of 0.25 to 0.33. So we can make good genetic selection progress on that. Once we as researchers know what that really means as far as what that does to production. So that, that technology, I think, is, is neat because it's not something you can do day of. It can be something that runs in the background of the farm um, that allows us to augment the, the selection process. Um, we're also working on some other projects that maybe aren't as far along as that, but using more or uh, cameras. And we have a set of females uh, where we started tracking them from uh, 120 days of age uh, all the way through their fourth parity if they last that long. And if they would last that long, we'd have 16 different times where we videoed those animals. And we'd video them from the side, the front, and the rear, uh, so we could get uh, essentially full body uh, structure angles on those. Um, it's it's interesting to see how those uh, sows change over time. Uh, how some of actually most of the joints get more flexibility to them at times. So, you know what you might select or what you might deem as acceptable for all, all of those those of us that are judging. We have that ideal angle. Well knowing that that angle changes over time, what is your ideal on a, you know, a 240-day-old guild or 150-day-old guild when your endpoint is having a, you know, parity three, parity four, you want them to pay for themselves. So knowing they're going to get a little bit more flex as they age, can you take a slightly straighter female? And I'm not, you know, they still need to have enough flex to, to put up with the concrete but you don't want one that's too soft because then they're going to go too far. And I think a lot of us have seen that on, on gilts, especially the rear legs. Uh, as they uh, mature, they get a lot more flex, especially in the rear pasterns, and then their legs start to go under. Uh, and then that's where you can run into to problems on that side. So, you know, for us, genetic, for this on genetic selection, it's the intermediate is the option, is a, the optimal. We, we don't need to be out on the peripheral you might need to cheat one way or the other, but, but not all the way out on the end. I think that's a good point. We sometimes forget that we're selecting these gilts at about 200 pounds and they're going to more than double their weight. And so structurally, there are going to be some changes as they add more weight, more height, more length to their, to their skeleton than when we're looking at them from a selection point. Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting to, to graph the, the growth and the structural growth and the angles. I think we all know the the weight metrics on on as the females grow, but to actually just say, you know, parity two, most of them have reached their mature body height, and after that, it's really kind of filling out. And so, you know, kind of what are we what are we doing to them at that point? You know, how are we growing them? Uh, 
to affect the, you know, the structural changes. You don't want to get, get those younger females too heavy. Uh, then they're carrying extra weight on an immature skeleton. So there, there's, there's lots of balances. We want the females that can grow well. We just don't want to push them to express all that early in life. On the back on the cameras, are there algorithms that these cameras are using? Are you using RFID tags? Um, what are you using to be able to identify your animals over time? Yes. So right now, the, the new track system is, I would say, it's very good in the research and, and development side. Um, the cameras are, they have great field of view, but in our pig barns, we're usually run with the eight foot ceiling. So that dictates how much of the pen that we can see. Uh, I have a lot of things on my wish list of things we can do once we can get a bigger field of view or put more cameras together. Uh, so as of, you know, right now, we're looking at, I'd say, a, a smaller finishing pen is where we're able to, to handle uh, nicely. And what the system does, so that we do use uh, some ear tags in there, the, the Destron fairing uh, sound tags. Most of that is actually for us humans to come back to validate that the system is actually identifying the pigs correctly. It's, so we have different colors and different uh, number sequences, alphanumeric sequences. And I, I wish they were sequential. We aren't quite to that point yet on the tags. But it's for us to verify when the system is calling an animal, a certain animal, uh, that it is. And so these tags, they're, they're non-RFID, they're non-barcoded. Uh, it's just uh, using the, the neural network, the deep learning for the system to actually first identify the pig. And then it uses the tag kind of as a secondary measure uh, to come back in and re-verify. Uh, so we've had actually had some really good results about some long-term tracking on animals and where a lot of other systems has failed is when it loses track of an animal to actually come back and reassign that animal to the, the ID to the correct animal. And this system has been able to do that. Um, so we, we, we challenged this system pretty hard early by putting it on a nursery pig. And so nursery pigs love to get in little scrums and piles and where they start in the pile and where they end up are two completely different points in, in, in the pen. And so it's been really nice to watch the system track the animals. And, and you know when they're in that scrum, it might not be as important to know which pig is which, but when they pop out and one goes to the feeder or one goes to the water, you, you obviously want to catch that. So it's really nice to see it when you have this scrum of pigs and then a pig gets up and then yeah, it, it puts the right tracking on it. It's like, how did you follow that pig through all of that? And so um, definitely different, uh, you know, than what, what some of the other systems are, are doing, but that's one that's really interesting to see and I tell people with these cameras, we don't know what we don't know yet until you sit there and you, and you watch uh, video on pigs and you look at some of the data coming back out. It's like, oh, okay. Now that kind of makes sense of why we're seeing some of these things. So I tell people really early on, one of the, the oddities that, that we, uh, we picked up is that we had a pig that was never uh, smart enough to uh, use a cup water it would it sustained off of what little bit in the cup was left over from everybody else and so i i was actually watching for tail biting in the video and i just happened to notice that one pig when he went to the the water he never pushed the nipple to drink he only drank what was what was left in it 
was the only pig uh, that we lost out of that trial. It was one that in the nursery, the first week after weaning, he lost 25% of his body weight. And so it's like, who knew we just had pigs that wouldn't, wouldn't learn to drink, right? You know, if it's a nipple water, he would obviously either learn to drink or not survive. Uh, but, but it's kind of interesting. And, and to also try to put proof of concept with some of this stuff, one of the first times we had some data back, it was, it was at a commercial barn and the fourth day was just really, really different. And we weren't sure what it was. And when we go back and we watch the video, cause we can see the data showing, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, something was off. And we actually went through and we found, um, you can see the video where the producer came in, saw something wasn't right, realized his water wasn't on and went back and turned the water on. And, and then you watch the pigs go and fight over water for the next two hours to get it turned back on. So when we see all these commercial closeouts and they're so variable and seeing just how much activity uh, that one water event, how much it changed those pigs was, was phenomenal to me. You know, we're, we're, you know, an out of feed event, an out of water event, you know, how much do those really dictate the bottom line at the end of the day? Um, I tell people, you know, we have really small nursery pens. Uh, so they're only four feet by seven feet. And these little winged pigs, when you put them in there, most of the time they average walking about a mile that first day before they come in and, and settle down and they're like, okay, I'm a pig. And they, so far, most of the time it takes the pigs out to about day four before they kind of settle into a pattern of, you know, just kind of being consistent. Their, their walking comes down to a level, their lane gets to about that level, then things tend to, tend to move in a uh, similar pattern for that point on. But to tell people we have little pigs in a, in a little bitty nursery pen that are walking a mile, you know, I had no frame of reference before that. So it's just really something that's really neat and novel to, to look at and then say, well, how's that, how could that help us manage pigs if we know that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I didn't realize a mile either. I mean, you always watch them walk the fence line and, and you know they're walking, but that's really intriguing and you're absolutely right when you know that and you know the degree in which it's happening it may change your management style or your approach whether it's through you know some water nutrition electrolytes etc or how you manage that right yeah i i wonder if especially in some of the bigger wean to finish facilities if we don't really need to close those pins down a lot smaller than maybe what we are knowing that you know just let them being a little scrum, if you will, and, and settle down because they're like little ping pong balls. They just move and bounce and move all over the place. So, you know, if there's more objects in their way, maybe they won't go as far and that they will settle down quicker. Yeah. But we, we've also, we've done some wean to finish uh, work as well. Cause one of the first questions we had in mind after seeing how much the animals were moving was, you know, well, how much are they moving? And is it, how much feed are they burning off? And so it was kind of a, it was a, a side project trial, but we did wean to finish. It was 132 days. The pigs were marketed at roughly 270 pounds. And in our, our smaller research pens, uh, the pigs still averaged, as I said, it was, we started with 192. They still averaged 
77 miles over their their life of that's how far they walk with a range of a low of 53 miles to a high of 102. And so you, you have that phenomenal range in, in pig activity. And mind you, these are, these are pigs that lived to off test. So if you have that much of a range, it's, it's, it's really fascinating as to what that can mean on the feed conversion side. Um, when we looked at that, so roughly every 300 extra feet that those pigs traveled a day was a decrease of, I think it's like 6.6 uh, pounds less to off test. So it makes sense. The pigs that are up and moving are lighter. Now, how can we use that to select for different pigs that may be more efficient? So we have some trials. We're, we're starting going down that route to try to get some feed intake data to, to truly put those two points together. Uh, maybe a, a way to augment some of the, the fire feeder data to, to get a more efficient animal. But it, again, we don't know what we don't know yet. And, and it's just fascinating where some of this technology is going to lead us in the future. Yeah, that's, that's actually really intriguing to me, that thought process. I mean, we certainly know feed efficiency and we can attract those pigs. But to think about it from a behavior standpoint um, is really intriguing. And so you hit the nail on the head and it, it ties back to whether or not we're talking about guilt development or you're talking about wean to finish is taking this information from the current groups and going back and thinking about selection and and how we tie this together and so um that's really exciting for me to think about is that technology giving us the ability to select animals on something a little different than just this phenotypical performance right yeah and one project that we have that's definitely out there uh because the the new track system will it'll also track the xy coordinates of the pigs so that, that gives us some fun maps of how they utilize pins, but we also know how they interact with each other then. And so we have some, we call them the social network matrices where you can see how close pigs tend to be to each other in a pin. And what we don't know, the ones that are really close are those, the, the, the boss pigs that like to always be beside somebody and boss them, or are they the, or are they the social butterfly that needs to be around somebody? And I can't answer that question yet. We haven't had it, but the, the data is there. So we're actually going to try to take some of that same data uh, from those replacement females and say, okay, those animals that tend to, to lie next to each other, maybe not as active, how do they perform as a sow? You know, are those really active ones? Are, are they the ones we want? Uh, or we want the more laid back ones? What, what does this mean? And, and I'll be honest, I don't think we know what it means yet uh, because we've never had the tool to, to measure that. And so I told my student, I said, we're going to swing for the fences on this. Um, we'll be able to write it up and report it either way. Uh, one way is going to be a lot more fun than the other way, though. I think it'd be intriguing to take that data and, and look at it from a housing perspective, too. Right. If you have females that always want to be touching, are they going to be more genetically suited for group pens versus those animals that want to be off on their own? Are they going to be more ideal for individual? And that alone, right, might affect their performance ability just from a stress level. Yeah, to, you know, find those animals that are not, or don't select on those boss sows or the ones that are always pushing them around, especially if, you know, we go down to the Prop 12 route where they're, we're in big uh, group pens and we're out at day 11 on the implementation, you know, 
we don't want those boss sows being aggressive and causing stress on other sows. So we would definitely be better to have a non-aggressive pig, especially in that time frame. You know, we, we still want them to be able to have that drive to get up and go eat and be a pig, but we ought, we don't want them to, um, I guess, do detrimental uh, activities to the other pigs. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you have some really exciting things coming down the pipeline and I'll be excited to watch what you, what you bring out to the group because I think it has some really interesting uh, potential benefits to the industry. As we wrap up our time together, Benny, if you have a couple of key points that you'd like our audience to think about today, I'd like to welcome you to throw those out to the group. Uh, so I will, I will probably lead off with that, you know, having people in the barns that really um, care and have the time to, to manage our animals is key. You know, we're in a, right now we're in a situation where labor is short, but if you can identify those people, you know, get them and hang on to them at all costs. Um, the other thing with some of our work that is in the process of being published, we've, we've identified that some of those foot lesion traits are definitely heritable. It makes sense. We, we see those and we see that in other species as well. Uh, so, you know, we need to take that data and we need to, to collect it and, and get it back to the genetic company so they can start selecting on that to, to give us guilt with, with better feet. But in the same time, we've also identified a management effect. And so a little bit controversial, but you know, we've identified uh, for some of the lesions, it's definitely better to have the gilts in stalls versus pins. So that kind of goes against the, the big drive, the big push right now for um, group sow housing. And, and not saying that we can't find our way around it. We just need to identify it and, and manage, uh, manage our pins, manage our gilts. Uh, to avoid uh, some of the, the feet and leg issues I think we are we're seeing and maybe even causing by having some of our certain pin setups. Very good. It is time to our famous three. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis Genetic Program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to Genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, as we wrap up, we always, as you know, like to ask our guest speaker a couple of questions that everybody gets asked. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, do you have any swine resources that you would recommend to our group? So I could use a, a canned reference. Uh, and since everybody tends to go with uh, one back to their species and go with the genetics of the pig, uh, being a geneticist. But, you know, to me, I like kind of keep pushing forward and, you know, still paying homage to the past. I really like to go through the journal articles to see what people are working on, uh, you know, with the you know, Journal of Animal Science, those ones, just what are people working on? What are some things where you can keep uh, improving uh, the animals? So I have the history lesson with the genetics of the pig and then, you know, the future of where can we keep going? Absolutely. How about any books that aren't pig related? Are there any that you're reading or have read that you'd recommend to our audience? So I guess uh, kind of growing up in, in West Texas, I've always kind of gravitated back on the, the Western heritage for some odd reason. And um, 
I guess my mom would start, she started me reading a lot on the Louis L'Amour stuff on the Western side. Uh, but some of the ones I found more interesting kind of gravitated off of that and uh, the uh, Empire of the Summer Moon uh, with some of the things on Quanah Parker and the Comanche Indians in, in that part of the world is one I, I really gravitated to because of uh, just the history of the area and how good they were with horses and just kind of how they actually kind of fought the, the Western movement of, of uh, you know, of the colonies. They kind of held it off for so so long. It's kind of interesting how one little little tribe could could have such a big range and territory, and it's because they were such good horsemen uh, with some things. So that that group, and especially with the history, the local history for me, that was a, a phenomenal book. I really liked to read. Very good. I'll have to look into that one. I have not heard that one before. The last question we like to ask is if you think about somebody who's successful in the industry or somebody that you view as successful, what's a key trait or quality that they possess that you think helped them become successful? So when I was a, a undergrad here at UNL, uh, well, there's a tradition where we have the block and bridle honoree. And one of the key takeaways from uh, the honoree one year was the world is run by those who show up. And it seems like such a, a simple statement. But then when you really start to think about it, you know, you know, who shows up to our barns, who shows up to vote, you know, who shows up, who puts in the job application. It is it's just so true. Those that have the desire uh, to, to better the world, they show up. The world is just simply run by those who show up. That's very good. Yes, I've heard that quote many times. I actually see it in some people's email tags. And I think it's, it's a very true statement, particularly for people involved in agriculture. Maybe not as profound as some of the other statements on here, but one that's you have to start there or or the rest of it doesn't matter. That's right. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time today. We greatly appreciate the conversation. I thought it was really fascinating. And as I said, I look forward to some of the work that you'll be releasing hopefully soon. Um, again, for our audience, this is Dr. Benny Moat from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thank you, Benny, for your time. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Take care. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com. And we need to raise those guilds like they are going to be replacement females. You know, we, we don't need to raise them off in the side of the barn uh, as grow finished pigs. We need to raise them like they're going to be the engine for your profitability. And to me, those are the places uh, where I think it, it starts. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. 
Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Adiseo, a worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions, such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health by nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host for today's Swine It podcast. I'm Laura Greiner, and with me today, I have Dr. Benny Moat, who is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska. How are you today, Benny? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, we're glad to have you on today. Benny, before we get started with our conversation, maybe it would be a good idea for you just to give our audience a little bit of background about who you are and what your experiences have been in the swine industry. So I'm, I'm one of the people that I can say I've, I definitely grew up in the swine industry as I was born into it. Um, my, my father has been in the swine industry his entire life as well. Uh, so I was born and I, I, even before school, I, I would go with him to his job as a manager. I'm not sure you can necessarily do that today. You have a little four or five year old kid running around, but I, I would go uh, with him uh, when he was working. Some of my early memories were helping move uh, little wean pigs from, you know, farrowing over to nurseries. And, you know, then it was put them in the back of the pickup and, and move them across the way. So to say that pigs is ingrained in me is, is definitely there. Um, you know, from from there, I guess most of my younger life, I grew up in, in happy Texas. I tell everybody it's a great place to be from. It's a good talking point. Everybody will, will recognize that. Um, did 4-H and FFA, uh, showing pigs from county up to the state level. Uh, then after high school, I actually spent three years in the Army, uh, bounced around a little bit, was only stationed in the U.S. Uh, following that, I Went to University of Nebraska here. I actually did my undergrad. I was on both the, the livestock and meats judging team when I was here. I was actually active in a lot of internships between uh, the U.S. Mark out at Clay Center and then even with Monsanto. So I was, I was very active in internships and then went and did my Ph.D. under uh, Dr. Matt Trotschild there at Iowa State uh, working on cell longevity of trying to find candidate genes for that. And then in 2008, I, I took my first job, I guess, adult job, if you will, with uh, Fast Genetics. Uh, the first two years, I worked uh, out of Canada in, in Saskatoon. And then after that, the next five years, I worked out of a home office uh, just outside of uh, Ames, uh, where my wife was living at the time. We were separated for the first couple of years. And then in 2015, I uh, had the opportunity to come to UNL as the um, assistant or the assistant professor and, and swine extension specialist uh, for the state uh, with a, you know, a 60% extension appointment and 40% research and have been active and, and busy here at UNL ever since. Wonderful. You certainly had quite a few life experiences along the way. 
Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the pigs have always seemed to be a part of that. And so I think that's a wonderful story to tell. From the time I was about in fifth grade to leaving for the army, uh, I did all the processing in the Farron house. And so when I came back home that first uh, break, when I was in the army, my dad told me, you got a lot of pigs you missed. And I said, I was in the army. How was I supposed to process them? So, <laughs> so I've, I've definitely got my hands dirty and my boots dirty uh, along the way. Wonderful. Well, one of the things, Benny, that you and I have visited a bit about is, is really with your experiences in the University of Nebraska, one of the things that you're passionate about is talking about sows and sow longevity, uh, which is very much a key issue that we talk about in the swine industry, um, certainly with survivability and performance and, and the economics of replacing a sow. Um, sow longevity should be on the top of our list. So Let's just start with some generalities. What have you seen over the last five to 10 years in terms of sow longevity? Anything that's significantly changing or stands out to you that, that we need to address right away? Uh, you know, I think one of the, the bigger take homes is that we've, we've been talking about sow longevity for decade, two decades now, and the needle hasn't gotten any better. As a matter of fact, it's probably actually gone worse. And so, you know, we, we need to step back as an industry and go, what has changed or, or what are we not doing that, that we should be doing? Um, I don't think it's necessarily the size of the farms. I think we get big farms that are good. We get little farms that are good and we get the opposite of that as well. So it, to me, it's going to come back to, I think, having people in the barn that understand the animal and can manage the animal they have in their barn. Yeah, I think that's what surprised me not that long ago. I was reviewing some data, and if you look from even five or ten years ago, reasons for sow removal are still pretty much the same. And the percent associated with lameness hasn't changed. And we've talked lameness and foot quality for years. And so, you know, where do we go, right? I think that's kind of where we sit here and scratch our heads and say, we've talked about it. We've identified the issues. We go into barns. We tell people if you get the sows up, watch for weight bearing on legs, you know, treat, so forth. How do, how do we change this needle? Do you have any thoughts immediately? Yeah, I, I think it's going to come back to uh, what animals get loaded onto the truck. And maybe, and it you know, probably starts well before that, but definitely which animals get selected. Uh, to go to the south farms at, at whatever size. Um, I know I've been in situations where I've seen um, guilt selected on farms where you wonder if they went past that second pin to go down and find the gilts to ship. You find the ones closest to the loadout chute and, okay, kind of walks, it gets loaded. So we need to, to get beyond that mentality, get a little extra incentive um, back to the selectors and make sure they have the time to actually go down through those guilds and select them, you know, not just give them an order last minute, say they got to go tomorrow. And, you know, they go through that's, that's when they do just go to the first couple bins and pull guilds and, and ship them. So, and, and we need to raise those guilds like they are going to be replacement females. You know, we, we don't need to raise them off in the side of the barn uh, as grow finished pigs. We need to, raise them like they're going to be the engine for your profitability. And to me, 
those are the places uh, where I think it, it starts. A couple of things that stood out when you were talking there. One thing I can always remember is we have our guilt development unit, our replacement females are there, we go in for selection and we give the farm staff a, a rule of 85% you need to select. Is that a fair number? to say, let's just set and say this percent of the, the population would be acceptable? Ooh, I, I hate using a, a, a set number. And depending on what those pigs have already gone through, I, I don't think I go to 85. In my mind, I guess I was always looking at about a, a 70%. Um, so, you know, kind of where that's at. But you give people a number and they're always able to try to hit that number. Um, one of my uh, earliest memories with, with FAST is when we were still fairly new shipping into the, the U.S. and we had a customer that, that wasn't pleased with uh, some of the guilts, particularly on feet and legs. So I was in and another person was in specifically selecting the loaded guilts to go to that customer. With the CEO of the company standing in the alley right behind us as we were going through and marking keep guilts and coal gills. And with the CEO going, I can't call that many, I won't stay in business. And with my friend and I going, but if you sell these gilts, you won't be in business. And so, you know, to tell somebody you have to have that, that, that percentage, they can always hit the percentage to go on the truck. It's, you know, having the people to know or giving your selectors a leeway to say, I can't get that with this set, but if you let me go one age group older or one age group lower, I can get you those gilts. And I think that would that would help a lot. Um, obviously, you need you need the throughput, but if if you just have that target, they'll always hit it. They'll always be able to sh ship eighty five percent, seventy percent out the door. Yeah, and that's something that I I actually think is is an interesting statement in itself because you often wonder. For all of the guilts that we raise as guilt replacements in the United States, what percent of them should we truly define as being acceptable into the population? And, and I'm not saying, okay, let's give the farm staff a number, but really how many animals should we think about as far as the whole pool in the United States is, are really set up to be replacement females? Yeah, and, and the point on that, you know, and there's ebbs and flows in um, the guilt flow oddly as to what is acceptable, even though, you know, it's roughly the same genetics all the time. You wonder kind of what those little intricacies are that, that get you to that point, but being able to, uh, you know, have that number and, and get them out the door is always kind of interesting. The other thing you, you said in that first statement really went around uh, raising them as if they are going to be our engines for the next pop, next generation. What does that mean to you, right? So is it space? Is it feed? Is it vaccine strategies? What, what in your mind are some things that we should be thinking about that hold that animal different? So I think uh, feed and space are the ones that most people gravitate to. And I think those are the, your starting points. Um, you know, making sure, uh, and I'd even probably even throw in flooring on that as well. You know, there's several people out in the industry will talk about if you do this 
certain thing on flooring, you know, the, the two thirds solid, one third slats or different type of slats, how they can get a different selection rate on their gilts. And so I think we need to come back and, and take a look at that on the, even on the slat side as, as what we're doing. And also, you know, having, um, you know, instead of just checking on them once a day, you know, they're, they're, they're your future. Have people check on them a couple of times a day. If you catch some of those things early, you can um, turn more things around. You can catch things from going uh, off the rails, if you will. Um, just so, you know, do it early. As if you ever get to that point where you're having to dig deeper in your gilts, the next time those females cycle through, you're just kind of be in that death spiral where you keep having to dig deeper uh, into that set of replacement gilts because the set you had before, uh, you know, they weren't set up for the future. So we, we want to stay away from that death spiral when it comes to replacement females. What are you seeing in terms of technology that can help us predict cell longevity or uh, just even that process of identifying animals that are appropriate for the herd? So this is uh, one of the, the fun topics that uh, research topics I get to work on. And so here at UNL, we have a, a, a system, uh, we call it NewTrack, uh, where we use uh, kind of off the shelf uh, can, uh, security cameras, uh, just 2D security cameras. We place it above some gilt pins uh, that were specific for uh, replacement females at a US mark. And we follow those gilts for a week, is one week prior to selection. And we actually, we went back and looked at some of the metrics that that system can track and compared it against how their train selector, what they did to keep females back. And of the traits that, that system tracks, we found some things such as the time those gilts been standing, like the distance they walk, you know, kind of how fast they walk. Those were correlated with being retained as replacement females. And so, you know, a lot, several of those things make sense. You know, the, the gilts that are more comfortable on their feet and legs, they can be up more, they can move more, they aren't really inhibited by anything. So just, you know, that makes sense. You know, we, we aren't trying to ever take away a job, but if we could, come back and, and augment that and say, here's this, here's what that guilt did the last week. Uh, you know, with that, that project, we picked up when gilts were going lame before the farm staff could identify them because, you know, those systems are in the barn 24 seven, they're watching them all the time. And so we could, it, it was really neat going back and say, yep, we could see the guilt, you know, her, her trajectory was going down. She wasn't walking as much and yep, that's then two days later, that's when they pulled her. So it's really neat to get to, to that level of detail uh, to pick that out. And, you know, for that one on lameness, the velocity, so how fast those gilts are walking and the distance were two very telltale signs of those animals are not as comfortable uh, as the other, especially when you get into those changes. Um, so that, that's been a, a really a neat project. It's We've we've started the new track on some other things. We've kind of ventured off into several different aspects of it. Um, we've identified that most of those traits, so the time they spend standing or lying or at the feeder, at water, um, and time sitting, those are they're heritable. It's actually a little bit scary how high those were. Most of them were in the heritability range of 0.25 to 0.33. So we can make good genetic selection progress on that once we as researchers know what that really means as far as what that does to production. So that, that technology, I think, is 
is neat because it's not something you could do day of. It can be something that runs in the background of the farm um, that allows us to augment the, the selection process. Um, we're also working on some other projects that maybe aren't as far along as that, but using more or uh, cameras. And we have a set of females uh, where we started tracking them from uh, 120 days of age uh, all the way through their fourth parity if they last that long. And if they would last that long, we'd have 16 different times where we videoed those animals. And we'd video them from the side, the front, and the rear uh, so we could get uh, essentially full body uh, structure angles on this. Um, it was, it's interesting to see how those uh, sows change over time, uh, how some of, actually most of the joints get more flexibility to them at times. So, you know, what you might select or what you might deem as acceptable for all, all of those, those of us that are judging, we have that ideal angle. Well, knowing that that angle changes over time, what is your ideal on a, you know, a 240-day-old guilt or 150-day-old guilt when your endpoint is having a, you know, parity three, parity four, you want them to pay for themselves. So knowing they're going to get a little bit more flex as they age, can you take a slightly straighter female? And I'm not, you know, they still need to have enough flex to, to put up with the concrete, but you don't want one that's too soft because then they're going to go too far. And I think a lot of us have seen that on, on gilts, especially the rear legs. Uh, as they uh, mature, they get a lot more flex, especially in the rear pasterns, and then their legs start to go under. Uh, and then that's where you can run into to problems on that side. So, you know, for us, genetic, for this on genetic selection, it's the intermediate is the option, uh, is a, the optimal. We, we don't need to be out on the peripheral. You might need to cheat one way or the other, but, but not all the way out on the end. I think that's a good point. We sometimes forget that we're selecting these gilts at about 200 pounds and they're going to more than double their weight. And so structurally, there are going to be some changes as they add more weight, more height, more length to their, to their skeleton than when we're looking at them from a selection point. Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting to, to graph the, the growth and the structural growth and the angles. I think we all know the, the weight metrics on on as the females grow but to actually just say you know parity two most of them have reached their mature body height and after that it's really kind of filling out and so you know kind of what are we what are we doing to them at that point you know how are we growing them uh, to affect the you know the structural changes you don't want to get get those younger females too heavy uh, then they're carrying extra weight on an immature skeleton so there's there's lots of balances. We want the females that can grow well. We just don't want to push them to express all that early in life. On the back on the cameras, so there are algorithms that these cameras are using. Are you using RFID tags? Um, what are you using to be able to identify your animals over time? Yes. So right now, the the new track system is, I would say, it's very good in the research and, and development side. Um, the cameras are, they have great field of view, but in our pig barns, we're usually running with the eight foot ceiling. So that dictates how much of the pen that we can see. Uh, I have a lot of things on my wish list of things we can do once we can get a bigger field of view or put more cameras together. Uh, so as of, you know, right now, we're looking at, I'd say, a, a smaller 
finishing pin is where we're able to, to handle uh, nicely. And what the system does so that we do use uh, some ear tags in there, the, the Destron fairing uh, sound tags. Most of that is actually for us humans to come back to validate that the system is actually identifying the pigs correctly. It's, so we have different colors and different uh, number sequences, alphanumeric sequences. And I, I wish they were sequential. We aren't quite to that point yet on the tags. But it's for us to verify when the system is calling an animal, a certain animal, uh, that it is. And so these tags, they're, they're non-RFID, they're non-barcoded. Uh, it's just uh, using the, the neural network, the deep learning for the system to actually first identify the pig. And then it uses the tag kind of as a secondary measure uh, to come back in and re-verify. Uh, so we've had actually had some really good results about some long-term tracking on animals and where a lot of other systems has failed is when it loses track of an animal to actually come back and reassign that animal to the, the ID to the correct animal. And this system has been able to do that. Um, so we, we, we challenged this system pretty hard early by putting it on a nursery pig. And so nursery pigs love to get in little scrums and piles and where they start in the pile and where they end up are two completely different points in, in, in the pen. And so it's been really nice to watch the system track the animals and, and you know when they're in that scrum it might not be as important to know which pig is which but when they pop out and one goes to the feeder or one goes to the water you, you obviously want to catch that so it's really nice to see it when you have this scrum of pigs and then a pig gets up and then yeah it it puts the right tracking on it it's like how did you follow that pig through all of that and so um definitely different uh you know than what what some of the other systems are, are doing but that's one that's really interesting to see. And I tell people with these cameras, we don't know what we don't know yet. Until you sit there and you, and you watch uh, video on pigs and you look at some of the data coming back out, it's like, oh, okay. Now that kind of makes sense of why we're seeing some of these things. So I tell people really early on, one of the, the oddities that, that we, uh, we picked up is that we had a pig that was never uh, smart enough to uh, use a cup water it it sustained off of what little bit in the cup was left over from everybody else and so i i was actually watching for tail biting in the video and i just happened to notice that one pig when he went to the the water he never pushed the nipple to drink he only drank what was what was left in it, it was the only pig uh that we lost out of that trial it was one that in the nursery, the first week after weaning, he lost 25% of his body weight. And so it's like, who knew we just had pigs that wouldn't, wouldn't learn to drink, right? You know, if it's a nipple water, he would obviously either learn to drink or not survive. Uh, but, but it's kind of interesting. And, and to also try to put proof of concept with some of this stuff, one of the first times we had some data back, it was, it was a commercial barn and the fourth day was just really really different and we weren't sure what it was and when we go back and we watch the video because we can see the data showing you know at 10 o'clock in the morning something was off and we actually went through and we found um, you can see the video where the producer came in saw something wasn't right realized his water wasn't on and went back and 
turn the water on and, and then you watch the pigs go and fight over water for the next two hours to get it turned back on. So when we see all these commercial closeouts and they're so variable and seeing just how much activity uh, that one water event, how much it changed those pigs was, was phenomenal to me. You know, we're, we're, you know, an out of feed event, an out of water event, you know, how much do those really dictate the bottom line at the end of the day? Um, I told people, you know, we have really small nursery pens. Uh, so they're only four feet by seven feet. And these little wing pigs, when you put them in there, most of the time they average walking about a mile that first day before they come in and, and settle down and be like, okay, I'm a pig. And they, so far, most of the time it takes the pigs out to about day four before they kind of settle into a pattern of, you know, just kind of being consistent. Their, their walking comes down to a level, they're laying just about that level, then things tend to tend to move in a uh, similar pattern for that point on. But to tell people we have little pigs in a, in a little bitty nursery pen that are walking a mile, you know, I had no frame of reference before that. So it's just really something that's really neat and novel to, to look at and then say, well, how's that, how could that help us manage pigs if we know that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I didn't realize a mile either. I mean, you always watch them walk the fence line and, and you know they're walking, but that's really intriguing. And you're absolutely right. When you know that and you know the degree in which it's happening, it may change your management style or your approach, whether it's through you know some water nutrition, electrolytes, et cetera, or how you manage that, right? Yeah, I, I wonder if, especially in some of the bigger wean to finish facilities, if we don't really need to close those pins down a lot smaller than maybe what we are, knowing that, you know, just let them be in a little scrum, if you will, and, and settle down because they're like little ping pong balls. They just move and bounce and move all over the place. So, you know, if there's more objects in their way, maybe they won't go as far and that they will settle down quicker. Yeah. But we, we've also, we've done some wean to finish uh, work as well. Cause one of the first questions we had in mind after seeing how much the animals were moving was, you know, well, how much are they moving? And is it, how much feed are they burning off? And so it was kind of a, it was a, a side project we trial, but we did wean to finish. It was 132 days. The pigs were marketed at roughly 270 pounds. And in our, our smaller research pens, uh, the pigs still averaged, as I said, it was, we started with 192. They still averaged uh, 77 miles over their, their life. Of That's how far they walked with a range of a low of 53 miles to a high of 102. And so you, you have that phenomenal range in, in pig activity. And mind you, these are, these are pigs that lived to off test. So if you have that much of a range, it's, it's, it's really fascinating as to what that can mean on the feed conversion side. Um, when we looked at that, so roughly every 300 extra feet that those pigs traveled a day, was a decrease of, I think it's like 6.6 pounds less at off test. So it makes sense. The pigs that are up and moving are lighter. Now, how can we use that to select for different pigs that may be more efficient? So we have some trials. We're we're starting going down that route to try to get some feed intake data to to truly put those two points together. Uh, Maybe a a way to augment some of the, the fire feeder data to, to get a more efficient animal. 
but it, again, we don't know what we don't know yet. And, and this is fascinating where some of this technology is going to lead us in the future. Yeah, that's, that's actually really intriguing to me, that thought process. I mean, we certainly know feed efficiency and we can attract those pigs, but to think about it from a behavior standpoint um, is really intriguing. And so you hit the nail on the head and it, it ties back to whether or not we're talking about guilt development or you're talking about wean to finish is taking this information from the current groups and going back and thinking about selection and and how we tie this together. And so um, that's really exciting for me to think about is that technology giving us the ability to select animals on something a little different than just this phenotypical performance, right? Yeah, and one project that we have that's definitely out there uh, because the, the new track system will, will also track the XY coordinates of the pigs so that, that gives us some fun maps of how they utilize pins, but we also know how they interact with each other then. And so we have some, we call them the social network matrices where you can see how close pigs tend to be to each other in a pin. And what we don't know, the ones that are really close are those, the, the, the boss pigs that like to always be beside somebody and boss them, or are they the, are they the social butterfly that needs to be around somebody? And I can't answer that question yet. We haven't had it, but the, the data is there. So we're actually going to try to take some of that same data uh, from those replacement females and say, okay, those animals that tend to, to lie next to each other, maybe not as active, how do they perform as a sow? You know, are those really active ones? Are, are they the ones we want? Uh, or we want the more laid back ones? What, what does this mean? And, and I'll be honest, I don't think we know what it means yet uh, because we've never had the tool to, to measure that. And so I told my student, I said, we're going to swing for the fences on this. Um, we'll be able to write it up and report it either way. Uh, one way is going to be a lot more fun than the other way, though. I think it'd be intriguing to take that data and, and look at it from a housing perspective, too. Right. If you have females that always want to be touching, are they going to be more genetically suited for group pens versus those animals that want to be off on their own? Are they going to be more ideal for individual? And that alone, right, might affect their performance ability just from a stress level. Yeah, to, you know, find those animals that are not or don't select on those boss sows or the ones that are always pushing them around, especially if, you know, we go down to the Prop 12 route where they're, we're in big uh, group pens and we're out at day 11 on the implantation, you know, we don't want those boss sows being aggressive and causing stress on other sows. So we would definitely be better to have a non-aggressive pig, especially in that time frame. You know, we, we still want them to be able to have that drive to get up and go eat and be a pig, but we ought, we don't want them to, um, I guess, do detrimental uh, activities to the other pigs. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you have some really exciting things coming down the pipeline and I'll be excited to watch what you what you bring out to the group because I think it has some really interesting uh, potential benefits to the industry. As we wrap up our time together, Benny, if you have a couple of key points that you'd like our audience to think about today, I'd like to welcome you to throw those out to the group. Uh, so I will I will probably lead off with that. You know, having people in the barns that really um, care and have the time to to manage our animals is key. You know, we're in a, right now we're in a situation where labor is short. 
But if you can identify those people, you know, get them and hang on to them at all costs. Um, the other thing with some of our work that is in the process of being published, we've we've identified that some of those foot lesion traits are definitely heritable. It makes sense. We we see those and we see that in other species as well. Uh, so you know we need to take that data and we need to to collect it and, and get it back to the genetic company so they can start selecting on that to to give us guilt with with better feet. But in the same time, we've also identified a management effect, and so a little bit controversial. But you know we've identified uh, for some of the lesions, it, it's definitely better to have gilts in stalls versus pins. So that kind of goes against the the big drive, the big push right now for um, group style housing and, and not saying that we can't find our way around it. We just need to identify it and, and manage, uh, manage our pins, manage our gilts uh, to avoid uh, some of the, the feet and leg issues. I think we are, you're seeing and maybe even causing by having some of our certain pin setups. Very good. It is time to our famous three. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot for knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, as we wrap up, we always, as you know, like to ask our guest speaker a couple of questions that everybody gets asked. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, do you have any swine resources that you would recommend to our group? So I could use a, a canned reference. Uh, and since everybody tends to go with one uh, back to their species and go with the genetics of the pig, uh, being a geneticist, but you know, to me, I like kind of keep pushing forward and, you know, still paying homage to the past. I really like to go through the journal articles to see what people are working on, uh, you know, with the, you know, Journal of Animal Science, those ones, just what are people working on? What are some things where you can keep uh, improving uh, the animals? So I have the history lesson with the genetics of the pig and then, you know, the future of where can we keep going? Absolutely. How about any books that aren't pig related? Are there any that you're reading or have read that you'd recommend to our audience? So I guess uh, kind of growing up in, in West Texas, I've always kind of gravitated back on the, the Western heritage for some odd reason. And um, I guess my mom would start, she started me reading a lot on the Louis L'Amour stuff on the Western side. Uh, but some of the ones I found more interesting kind of gravitated off of that and uh, the uh, Empire of the Summer Moon. Uh, with some of the things on Quantum Parker and the Comanche Indians in, in that part of the world is one I, I really gravitated to because of uh, just the history of the area and how good they were with horses and just kind of how they actually kind of fought the, the Western movement of, of uh, you know, of the colonies. They kind of held it off for so, so long. It's kind of interesting how one little, little tribe could, could have such a big range and territory and it's because they were such good horsemen uh, with some things. So that, that group, and especially with the history, the local history for me, that was a, a phenomenal book. I really liked to read. Very good. I'll have to look into that one. I have not heard that one before. 
the last question we like to ask is if you think about somebody who's successful in the industry or somebody that you view as successful, what's a key trait or quality that they possess that you think helped them become successful? So when I was a, a undergrad here at UNL, uh, well, there's a tradition where we have the block and bridle honoree. And one of the key takeaways from uh, the honoree one year was the world is run by those who show up. And it seems like such a, a simple statement. But then when you really start to think about it, you know, you know, who shows up to our barns? Who shows up to vote? You know, who shows up? Who puts in the job application? It is it's just so true. Those that have the desire uh, to, to better the world, they show up. The world is just simply run by those who show up. That's very good. Yes, I've heard that quote many times. I actually see it in some people's email tags, and I think it's, it's a very true statement, particularly for people involved in agriculture. Maybe not as profound as some of the other statements on here, but one that's you have to start there or, or the rest of it doesn't matter. That's right. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time today. We greatly appreciate the conversation. I thought it was really fascinating. And as I said, I look forward to some of the work that you'll be releasing, hopefully soon. Um, again, for our audience, this is Dr. Benny Moat from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thank you, Benny, for your time. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Take care. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.